0: Welcome to episode 262 of Greater Than Code. I'm Damian Burke and I'm joined by May Beal. And I'm here with Casey Watts.
1: Hi, I'm Casey. We're all here with our guest this week, Evan Light. Hi, I'm Evan Light. Welcome Evan. Evan has been in the tech field for over 25 years and has the gray hairs to show for it. Evan was searching for the term psychological safety long before it became mainstream. He just wishes he had it sooner. Evan prizes growing teams and people by creating empowering environments where people feel free to share their ideas and disagree constructively. He lives in the crunchiest part of the D.C. area, Tacoma Park, Maryland. So glad to have you here, Evan.
2: Thank you. Glad to be here. All
1: right, we're going to ask our first question we always ask. What is your superpower, Evan, and how did you acquire it?
2: Well, the first thing that came to mind is talking ad nauseum About topics that aren't all that interesting to whoever I'm talking to at the time. And the way I acquired it was being born probably a little bit different with ADHD. And I say probably because I still need to prove it concretely that I have ADHD, but I'm working on it.
0: Well, that sounds like a very useful superpower for a podcast guest. (laughs) Well, if you want that guest to take up the whole show, then sure.
3: Yes, please. We will.
0: Yeah, I think that's How'd
2: why we are here. Well, I do like conversation. That's that's the funny part. I like give and takes. Just sometimes I lose track of how long I've been talking.
3: I do that too, Evan.
2: Fair. Yeah, I wonder how many of you have ADHD too. <laughs> I
3: do, there is like a statistically significant portion of programmers for sure.
2: I don't know that there have been scientific studies of it, but the currently reported number of, I think, four and a half percent of the population is well-acknowledged to be significantly underreported, at, at least among adults. And that's because when people say ADHD goes away with age, it in fact doesn't. We just look, we just, and I kind of hate the word, four-letter word. Uh, people with ADHD often tend to find ways to compensate for it, and those of us who don't get it diagnoses later in life if we don't have it already, and two, how many people do you know who seek out mental health evaluations and counseling? So I'm sure it's massively underreported.
0: Which brings up my question, how does one diagnose an adult with ADHD? Yeah, that's a fun one.
2: So I know of, well, I guess three ways now. One, you're talking to a doctor who themselves has ADHD and has some idea, or a person who's taught, who has ADHD, not necessarily a doctor, who has a pretty good idea of what to look for, usually because they have it. And you tell them about some problems you're having. And they say, huh, well, I know this problem can sometimes be caused by comorbid with, this is a medical term that's often thrown about, this other problem, ADHD. That's how I found out about it. Frankly, I was trying to figure out how to, after having dealt with so many other problems in my life, lose the excess weight, talking to a weight loss medical specialist in DC and uh, also has ADHD. And he said, huh, this all sounds like ADHD. Fill out this really simple test that uh, I'll be glad to share with you all. It's just a PDF and uh, you can share it with listeners and you can pretty quickly see for yourself how likely you are based on how you respond. That's one way. Uh, another way is sit down and talk with a uh, psychologist or psychiatrist who has some special background in ADHD, who they, they can just sort of evaluate you. And the third way is coupled somewhat with the second one, which is what I did this early this morning. It, there is a test called QB check, uh, letter Q, letter B check. It's an online test uh, that uses your camera and eye tracking, so I guess that uses uh, computer vision as part of it, which I thought found intriguing, to test your attention, how apparently how much your eyes are moving, and how quickly and correctly you respond to prompts on the screen. I think you' be checked you're not supposed to take directly from them. Maybe you, you can, but in my case it's I'm going through a psychologist. Who's going to evaluate that test with me and then talk to me about it. <laughs> However, I'm, I'm really, really curious for the results. I won't. I kind of wish I was talking to you all in a week because I'll get them tomorrow morning. I've been a meditator most of my life. I can focus my attention when I, well, deliberately concentrate. So I deliberately concentrated taking that test. I wonder if I skewed the test results with that way. <laughs> I'm really eager to find out because <laughs> I very naturally sort of slipped into a meditative state with, you know, focus on the space on the screen, hit the space bar when you see a pattern repeated, and then just stay there. Okay. It's really hard for me to do this. There are a lot of distracting noises. All right. I'm just going to be aware of distracting noises, but I'm going to stay with the thing on the screen. That's meditation. Instead of focusing on my breath, I focused on the object on the screen. So um, I'm dying to know, (laughs) I'll find out tomorrow.
0: So then I have a follow-up question. Uh, Why seek a medical diagnosis for ADHD as an adult? Oh,
2: yeah. So um, first off, it's how do I debug myself? And if I want to speak nerdy about it, but I guess that's a lot how I approach a lot of things. Trying to fix a problem in myself that I've been trying to fix for, well, now 48 years, the time 47 years, this was last October, uh, with my weight. Okay, not 47, technically, this would have been 40 years. And um, well, if nothing else worked, then if I have a new potential cause, that gives me another lever I didn't have before. So when the doctor says, oh, ADHD might be a contributing factor, huh, I need to know more about that. So that, that's part of it. Some of it is, um, I wouldn't say post-hoc rationalization, more like post-hoc understanding and even self-compassion. I've never really felt like I belonged among most people. Okay. I present straight, white, male, like everyone else in tech. I was raised Jewish and that means I'm 2% of the population. And so around this time of year, I would always feel like the weirdo. People are singing songs in school. I'm being forced to sing their songs. Don't like it. I would squirm every time the Holocaust came up because I lost relatives in it. And I've always just had a hard time, frankly, connecting with, oh, I had a hard time a lot as a kid connecting with other kids. I was a pariah a lot of my life. And um, there might be an explanation that really a fairly concrete one of, well, here's why you didn't belong is because your brain is different. And, then I'm really interested in exploring that because that gives me a whole different way to evaluate my life. Why did I make some of the decisions that I made? Because I don't like some of them. Why did I have some of the problems that I had? How can I do it differently? That it's not just understand the past better and have more compassion. It's how can I live a better life? And that's where I can say, oh, for a camera, which you all can't see, I'm holding up my um, Adderall at this mm-hmm. point. Uh, thanks to this gem and, is this the other one? No, wrong bottle. Thanks to Adderall and Vyvanse, I'm a much happier, less anxious person on a regular basis. Anxiety and depression used to eat me alive for a lot of my life. And um, I don't have that problem nearly as much. That uh, I get maybe you know, one bad day a month now, and it used to be a lot more often than that. I mean, I wrote a blog post about it because I wanted it mattered such, so much to me. I wanted people to know I've always been very pro discussing mental health, normalizing mental health. Because you know, I, I had struggles earlier in my life too. Where uh, this is a whole other tangent. Where I was a caregiver for ten years, and that really put me through an emotional ringer and a lot of mental health care. And so I wanted other people to feel comfortable talking about it, partly because I wanted to feel comfortable talking about it. So I want to normalize it also because I know I work with a lot of people who have undiagnosed conditions where if they just explored them and if they work with me, they've got pretty good insurance. (laughs) They could. Then, oh, my God, why wouldn't you? I mean, okay, and I say that there's grief associated with the knowledge. When you find out you've lived a large chunk of your life in a way with, with these sufferings you didn't have to have, It hurts to realize that because on one hand, yay, my life can be better. It's, but oh fuck, you know, there's everything that came before that if I'd known this, it didn't have to be that bad. You know, that maybe I wouldn't have had those experiences or maybe they just wouldn't have hurt so much because, um, I had to not take my meds for 24 hours to take that test this morning. I was really unhappy last night. (laughs) I wasn't depressed. It's just mm-hmm. I was really irritable. Lots of things were making me stabby. And I don't take a big dose of Adderall. It's not like I'm a, a junkie. I, I take seven and a half milligrams, which for most uh, people with ADHD, that's a tiny dose. But I've I've played with my dosage, and that's right about my sweet spot. That that's just enough stimulant where I don't feel stimulated, where I don't feel um, uncomfortable, but I also don't feel irritable. And before the meds, you know, irritable, anxious, frequently. That was just my normal. I didn't know that. That I didn't know it could be different. It can be different. So that's why you want to know.
3: What an amazing the, uh, answer, Evan. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Long one, which again, that's superpower. <laughs> well, okay. We're
3: with you. I would add to your superpowers the ability and willingness to be vulnerable. Having known you a while, someone who is willing to just say the things and like answer the real answer and the answer below that answer, there's nothing I like more than talking to people about where they're really, really, really at. And I'm just so grateful about how you you always do that. And there was a, a couple things in your sharing about you know not feeling like you belong. It really struck me because you are someone who is always creating opportunities for belonging. There's a reason for that. Yeah, exactly. It's like a super, uh, very classic Tears of a Clown stuff that most of the people, myself included, who, who work to make spaces for people, it's usually because they have experienced that other thing. So I am sorry that you have had such challenge to be so different, but I can say, speaking personally and on behalf of many, like how grateful I am and we are for what you have done with that.
2: Thanks. That was something prior to a lot of therapy and medication. I um, would have cringed at hearing because I wasn't at all comfortable receiving gratitude. I say receiving it. I mean, internalizing it. I would hear it and I would wince. I'm not worthy. (laughs) Uh, It was what would come to mind. Uh, No, thank you. But there there really was a selfish, There had, there's always a selfish component to it. And that's, I create spaces for belonging because I want to belong there. That if I don't feel like I belong in other places, then maybe I can create a place I belong and other people can belong to who feel like they don't either. So, yeah, you know, I can help myself, but I can help other people at the same time.
3: Totally. You said a second thing that stuck out to me about debugging oneself and it um reminds me of our co-host's book called debugging a dream and i'm curious Casey, if you have anything that you might want to say about that topic
1: yeah evan and i talked a lot about this ideas that are in the book before i published it before i had to talk about it and i would bounce ideas off of him he knows very well all the stuff in my book.
2: I, I've read some parts of it multiple times over a few different drafts. Uh, mm-hmm. I was always bothering Casey with what was less CBT, more uh, self awareness, more 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 emphasis on self discovery and meditation. And I've I, I softened somewhat in that re- in that respect that I used to take a more or a less generous perspective to meditation versus CBT. That I, I told Casey before, you need to have at least a certain level of self awareness to be able to, to be able to CBT, and that what I see is a lot of people lack that fundamental self awareness they need in order to CBT effectively. I don't think that that's true anymore. I think it's it's just like meditation that you peel layers of the onion potentially, and having more than one tool to do that can be effective, but having too many could be exhausting. So, you know, I see a therapist, he doesn't use CBT, he uses, uh, oh, geez, sh- uh, short term, I always get it wrong. I'll have to look it up, I'll, or I'll remember it later in the podcast. It's a five-letter acronym that's a little convoluted, and it's not as common. Uh, no, Evan,
3: Evan, would you be willing to say for listeners what CBT is, just in case? Oh,
2: cognitive behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. sorry. Cognitive behavioral therapy is where you identify the thought that causes or the thoughts, thought or thoughts that cause the stories and feelings that we're reacting to the uh, therapy that I have is sort of the inverse. It's you start with the feelings and you go and look at how those show up in the thoughts and stories and physical manifestations in the body. And, um, I've seen some intro to philosophy courses where they, where does thought begin and, or where does feeling begin and which comes first? And I don't know that neuroscience has successfully answered this question, but philosophy sure hasn't.
0: <laughs> well, I, I can tell I can say with some confidence that neuroscience is not capable of answering that question. Uh, I don't know if it ever Ooh. will be.
2: Ooh. That uh, interesting. I, I, don't know that saying you're saying science won't ever be able to prove a thing
3: do say more I, do say more
2: yeah that's an absolute i don't believe in too many of those
0: <laughs> <laughs> well Before. we're we're talk, we're talking about internal conscious thought internal experiences like i don't think that that's a scientific concept the best you can get is self reporting on it i suppose the best we can now that can change Sure. And you can, me- you can measure, uh, neurons and, and, uh, intra-neuron potentials and serotonin and dopamine levels, but translating that to thought is not a scientific concept.
2: Not yet. I say not yet, but we keep developing technologies at smaller and smaller scales. And if we can develop technologies, we, we have, Nanotechnology already, we have complicated enough systems that we can inject into the body that can measure this information and send telemetry on it. And so you would probably end up with massive amounts of telemetry. But if you could correlate that with self reported, honest, honest, self reported thought, maybe you end up with a Rosetta stone of sorts, a really, really heavily data loaded
0: Rosetta stone. I mean, and that—that's as close as you're going to get, like in biological telemetry, uh, coupled with with self-reporting.
2: Yeah, which is what we have, but now. Uh, but except not at that level of fidelity. That if you get a high enough fidelity, maybe you can approximate what people are actually thinking with a reasonable degree of accuracy oh my god we can do that let's let's
1: talk about this fidelity this is my background neuroscience
2: yeah right i know and a little bit of mine now
1: my favorite types of studies when i was uh, studying this at yale were the single neuron studies because then you really know the electrical what's going on over time for a single cell and i always wish there were more studies that did like 1 million cell studies. I don't know how many neurons are in the brain, but like every single neuron in the brain, I want to measure at the same time without the needles affecting anything about how it works, which is another problem. And then that's just the electrical part, but you can't from that measure the epigenetic modifications to each gene over time and each, each neuron. And Oh my God, it's so complicated to truly represent everything that's going on at the lowest level that I would want to do. So that's why there's some studies on single neurons in like, Organisms with only one neuron or like very few neurons—they just have like six. Some model organisms do, but then a human brain. Oh, our best say, but is six like workflow neuro- flow as a proxy for neuronal activation. That's an MRI. <laughs> and I, I would love to get a full <laughs> download of everything going on in the brain in every way whatsoever. But that is so sci-fi. I don't. I can't imagine what it would look like today. I, 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 the, I think. I think the focus
0: on. It. I think the focus on the neur- the neurological system is is completely misplaced. Like I can tell what people are thinking by their respiration rate, yeah. by their pupil dilation. If I can see it, you can see people's heart rate by, by the change in color in their face. But like, there
2: are so many indicators. And so you see, now we're getting into another topic that's interesting to me too, because uh, I've been learning to teach the Search Inside Yourself program, which came out of Google from over 10 years ago, which is a combination of... Neuroscience backed by about 20 different neuroscience studies and neuroscience, emotional intelligence and mindfulness to develop leadership skills and to increase performance. There are a lot of things you're saying, Damien, that neuroscience has been able to prove already that we can prove that neuroscience has demonstrated, for example, that habits or that behaviors that we repeat, the brain optimizes for those habits. That's neuroplasticity, that the, the brain alters its structure based on the activities we perform. That In, in Search Inside Yourself, we cite a study where experienced meditators versus unexperienced meditators, an experienced meditator's brain is substantially different, mm-hmm. that their they, so for example, that we can see in fMRIs, for example, that they experience less anticipatory stress before pain than someone who is not an experienced meditator, that they spend less time in distress after that pain, after the pain is applied. Because I mentioned anticipatory, so they know it's coming. It's not anxiety, it's they know it's going to happen, you know, then they experience it. And then the time after they recover faster that this is proven under fMRI. There are a lot of things like that where we have that at kind of the macro level. It's this, we got really into the weeds because I do that with the ADHD, I think. But uh, you know, talking about what if we could model, if we could record every neuron, you know, every electrical transaction, every ne- electrical exchange in the brain. But then there's also the chemical, the biochemical exchanges too, you know, the, bi- the, uh, the neurotransmitters. Casey's point honestly i didn't think of the actual you know, genetic modifications that occur but that's you know, i guess also a manifestation of neuroplasticity itself perhaps but some of my point is because i got a little into the sci-fi land again we have these studies that show that the brain can be intentionally altered that mm-hmm. we do this all the time when we practice any skill we're altering our brain
4: Rarely does a day pass where a ransomware attack, data breach, or state-sponsored espionage hits the news. It's hard to keep up with all this and also to know you're protected. Don't worry, Kapersky's got you covered. Each week, their team looks at the latest news, stories, and topics you might have missed during the week on the Transatlantic Cable Podcast. Mixing in-depth discussion, expert guests from around the world, a pinch of humor, and all with an easy-to-consume style. Be sure to check them out today.
3: I wanted to get back to the thing that Damien opened up about, the limitations of science. And my undergrad is biochem, and what I realized is most inquiry, most scientific inquiry is fundamentally a result of a discomfort with the unknown. Mm. And when I I went to massage school for a little while and I lived at Kripalu, the yoga retreat center, so I've been around some oh, cool. of these same circles, Evan. And what I find is a lot of times those folks will use a lot of scientific words and rationale <laughs> to <laughs> basically justify the fact that they are supporting people deepening their spirituality and like to use science as a like validity tool about anything to do with one's spirit i have a lot of feelings about that it, it like it grates on my ears when i start to hear people trying to quantify and justify and like i want some mystery and i I'm okay with it, and i th- I think there's a piece in there. I agree though with all of your opening statements, Evan, about like knowing more about oneself and like what you can do with that, but I don't dream of every neuron being measured because I think it will actually shroud our ability to understand the things we need and want to as like humankind. I don't know
1: so I see a pattern that bothers me a lot that's very related some people take uh science to the extreme they say i will only believe the things that have been proven i will not Mm -hmm. believe things that have not been proven even if they haven't been disproven either the unknown things i just won't believe in them at all like meditation wasn't respected by a lot of science thinkers until now there's more studies saying it totally does things (laughs) but like we knew it worked for a very very long time
2: (laughs) See, and because of the ADHD, I literally have to take notes because I don't want to lose topics. Oh, I'm me not, too. Even I ki- that. I'm not even kidding. I am not even kidding. It's
3: part okay. of why I'm, wonder, I'm an interrupter in life, Evan, too, is because I'll i I'll forget about too. it if I don't say it right then.
2: Hey, that's ADHD possibly.
3: Oh yeah. I'm in the crew.
1: Yeah, I relate okay. to that. I relate okay. to almost every ADHD meme I see, and I wonder if I have it sometimes. But I don't have a diagnosis and I don't feel like it would help me that much because I'm not looking for the med part and I am already doing the coping mechanisms part. Mm-hmm. Like the the non-medication therapies for ADHD. I just read everything I can about every mental illness in case that there are any nuggets that help improve my life.
2: May, what I'd say first is I don't think I brought the spiritual side into anything I said.
3: You didn't. Yeah, yet.
2: Yeah, <laughs> <Okay. Or yet. laughs> <Yet. clears throat> uh, I say yet. I mean, sure. I'll just come out and say, okay. By the way, I'm a Buddhist. I didn't start there, though. Or I suppose, in a weird kind of way, maybe I did. I just didn't mean to. Uh, I mean, I no. I started with meditation at age 17 because I was an angry teenager, and I kind of accidentally fell into it.
0: How how does an angry teenager get started with meditation? That that's that's a yeah. Well, (laughs) it was
2: it it, it wasn't intentional. It was uh, my mother didn't want to pay for kung fu lessons, which is what I wanted because I wanted to beat the crap out of things to take my anger out on. It It, come on, that seems obvious, right? Physically, (laughs) I don't know, punish inanimate objects. So, but there was this really nice aikido aikido dojo nearby, and why don't you try that? That's cheaper. Okay, fine. I didn't know anything about Aikido at the time. It also turned out that I um, found myself in one of the most internal, if not the most internally focused Aikido, schools of Aikido that exist in the world. Uh, it's called Shinshin Shin Toitsu Aikido. I can provide a link to it. Also known uh, globally as the Key Society, not K-E-Y, but K-I. And, uh, every Sunday there was this lovely woman named Mary Kay who taught, uh, meditate, who started with a meditation, an hour long meditation set. And I found that I had so much more peace doing that. I just fell in love with, with it. And, um, I didn't continue the practice rigorously after going when I started in college, I tried to, they have a dojo in Charlottesville where they did, but it stayed with me. And then, um, when my first wife was diagnosed with Huntington's disease, huge tangent there. I remembered before I went to to university of Virginia, they gave me this reading list and I said, here are all these books we want you to read. I didn't know that I wasn't going to be tested on any of the stuff, felt obligated to read it. One of those was Herman Hesse's Sid Hartha, which is you know, oh, story a story. Absolutely excellent. Movie, book. Right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So uh, I, um, remembered Siddhartha. Okay, Buddhism. Yeah, there's this whole religion that says life hurts. Hmm, Maybe I should explore that. That's not really what it says, but that suffering is unavoidable. And the whole religion, such as it is, you know, religion is about how do we engage with that, or at least the, the philosophy of it. And I found a website and a podcast that is currently defunct called Zencasts, which is ironic, considered we're using an app called Zencaster. <laughs> and that comes from the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. And I've been listening to them ever since 2006 to the Dharma Talks, uh, which is a talk given by a, a person who is usually a, an ordained priest of Buddhism and now they have a podcast called Audio Dharma that's still running. That's recordings of their meditations and their dharma talks. And uh, I followed that for years and years and years, telling myself I don't do this religion thing. Uh, I gave up on religion decades before. But mindfulness, okay, that you know, that that's the 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 secular version, right? So yeah, that, yeah, mindfulness. I'll do that. Turns out, I guess when you st- you get into that enough, it's you're going to be exposed and you listen to enough talks, you're eventually going to be exposed to some ideas that aren't just mindfulness that are Buddhist related and quickly realize, okay, fine. Maybe I can self-describe, you know, identify, I can, maybe there is an identity of secular Buddhism. It turns out that's most Western Buddhism. Most people don't buy into the reincarnation thing and karma and all of that. And uh, the, but the philosophy
3: I'm
2: yeah, a that, huge Pema Chodron fan. Yep. Okay. I, I've read some of hers. I, the ADHD makes it really hard for me to take in any book that's nonfiction in its entirety, but I've read some Pema Chodron. I've read some of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Uh, some people object to the His Holiness part. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh, Gil Franzdahl, who is um, the lead teacher at Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, and a few others. I just got a huge soft soft spot for, for Gil because his was the first Dharma talk I ever listened to. Now I just find his voice so soothing. I could say I'm a Gil fanboy. Love it. But the uh, mystical versus scientific part that... I feel ya... <sighs> The analogy that comes to mind, I got really pissed at George Lucas when he started explaining the force away with chlorians. It's like, God damn it, George, take that back. <laughs> that that <hasn't> happened. Happened. <laughs> yeah, the force is supposed to be magic. Don't kill, don't kill, ma- don't take magic from the world. That just makes me upset. I don't, uh, on one hand, um, I, I feel what you're saying, May. On the other hand, I subscribe to the notion that I'm a biological machine and with adequate science, I'm probably fully deterministic. At the same time. I um, wouldn't want people to be able to read my mind and with businesses out there like uh, Meta, aka
0: Facebook, no, fuck that. Yo. I want to say these are not contradicting philosophies, right? You can believe in a clockwork universe that absolutely um, is deterministic uh, while at the same time knowing that there are things that science cannot prove that are true. Like that's a scientific fact. There are things that are, sci- that are true that science cannot prove. And so... Sorry, and then there are things that are just that are literally not scientific. My favorite color is blue. That's a fact. That's not a scientific fact. There is no science that's going to prove that. You, the, the closest you're going to get.
2: I wonder if that's really true. That no science, no science currently could prove that. Still, I I, I question whether it's universally true. No science could ever prove that
0: you can you the best you can get is correlation between a physical response uh and a particular wavelength of light.
2: Uh again, currently I I still that there I think there's a chain of causality there that you might be able to connect with enough really really deep telemetry which we do not have nor seem likely to have any time at all in our lifetime.
3: <laughs> I'm still on the uh I don't care how many stats there are. There's still more. And to your think, Demi, the, so. the definition like that I learned in school, like in college of scientific fact is not yet been proven false. Like that's the best that we can do. Yeah. And yeah. this is uh, pretty limited. Also, when yeah, you look so- at the history of scientific thought, which I have taught before, It's fascinating what we used to think were facts.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And
3: when we just like, we are constantly talking about it like it's just this aggregation of facts over time. And like, really, it's just constantly rehabbing everything that we got attached to. So all of the things that we even are referring to as facts are things we now know or whatever, or things we will find out later later. Yeah, and most everything we think right now is the probability of it being totally wrong is very high.
2: Well, that's why we call them, that's why science calls them theories, right? Because Fair. theory means this has been demonstrated to be true given the information we have available, but theories can also be proven false.
0: Yeah, and and I love that word, non-falsifiability. Like scientific facts are falsifiable. Mm, uh, Yeah. Yeah. Scientific theories are falsifiable. And if you work really hard to falsify them and you fail, then you're probably true.
2: (laughs) I mean, if that's what we call true. Yeah, this is where we can get down to like what's the definition of facts, scientific facts. You could call measurements facts, but even a measurement is gonna be some degree of approximation because you're always rounding at some point. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah.
3: Oh my gosh, I'm starting to have so much fun right now. Okay, but there's also generally not like truth, capital T is usually very, includes a lot of contradictions. And if it is one way and everybody answers that same thing, that's probably fallible. <laughs> like when you start to get the contradictions and see a richer picture, that's when I feel closer to whatever truth that is. And so when people tell me like that there's such and such kind of person and they think this kind of way or a scientific fact, it's the only one truth, this is when I definitely don't believe whatever it is. So that's also why <laughs> I like to include the... group yeah, groupthink. ...mystery magical option in there too, because unless you're including that, you're not getting the successive approximation to the truth in my book.
2: See, this is where I start... Casey was going there too. This is when I start thinking about human dynamics and teams. That as a leader or you know as a manager, because there is a difference between management and leadership. Frankly, I tend to be my most uncomfortable when no one disagrees with me. <laughs> that uh, if I, yes. or I should say, it, when I put an if I'm putting an idea out there that is fairly obvious, that we're all breathing in oxygen. That, okay, that I'm not too concerned about if people disagree with me. When I'm putting an idea out there that's fairly novel and there's some risk associated with it, and no one says anything to disagree, I get nervous. Wait a minute. No one has a problem with this at all? Are you just, do you feel safe enough to respond? What's going on here?
0: (laughs) Mm hmm. Yeah, what, what's more likely? Everybody agrees, or people don't feel unsafe disagreeing.
4: Yo, yeah. <laughs> right. whoa, no, no,
2: you just used one of my most one of the most painful things you could use with me—a double negative. Ow. <laughs> no, don't do that. It's like using un- "unless" in a Ruby statement. It hurts my brain. <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh my gosh, Damien, it's so true. It is hard to foster environments where disagreement is welcomed, acceptable, encouraged, sustained?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I, I know what I do, and I know to, to try to do that. I also know it's not universally successful. Was I was uh, given a little dose of much-needed humility in that regard recently uh, with a team member of mine. I think, May, Casey, you've seen this with me before, that I tend to, try to tend to be one of the earlier people to deliberately be vulnerable to admit some shortcoming or some mistake that I try to establish, Hey, I'm okay admitting I'm wrong or I've been wrong. And if it's okay for me, if you see me as an authority figure, this is me trying to tell you, I want you to feel okay doing it too. That, you know, I'm okay. I'm up here saying, Hey, I effed up. Wow, that time I chose not to swear for whatever reason. I think I'm in a the, the little bit more of the work context when I'm talking about teams. And no one's throwing stones at me yet. So maybe it's safe for you to do it too. That works for some people.
0: I and also that's so important. It's so important to come from people at the top, near the top. Exactly. Like when your boss, when your boss is like, "Oh, I was wrong about this." When when the CTO was like, "Oh yeah, last week I I knocked off production. Ooh, my bad." Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, but, you, they-
2: see, but when you when you say that, I'm also I try to think about the counterpoint because I've seen this not succeed. Sometimes I've been confused by it. There's well, what happened after? You made that mistake. Was there account? Was there an accountability conversation? What did that look like? Were you taking a risk or risk, or did you just make an air quote dumb mistake? Was it really bad judgment? That there's a difference between being vulnerable and creating psychological safety and having accountability, and that's that can be a kind of fuzzy boundary. But what I found is holding accountability you got to do that shit in private because that disrupts psychological safety. And you have to think about when you're holding accountability, well, who's going to hear about the repercussions and what will that do to psychological safety? I won't go into details, but I can think of a situation where I saw someone perhaps make have a severe lapse in judgment, get fired over it, and then having a chilling response on an open organization as a result, causing a severe lack in cycle, a reduction in psychological safety. Um, I'll say I had no part of this. <laughs> Just want to be clear. I do not reach for the firing uh, but the fire button when it comes to people making mistakes. It's okay. How do we learn from this and get better? Is my preference that when someone makes a mistake, I think of it usually as okay. You made the mistake. How did the system allow for this in the first
0: place? Bingo. Yes,
1: and, and,
2: and how can we prevent this in the future such that the system sets puts you in a position where you are able to make that mistake? Can we put in guardrails and checks and does the, the, Danger, the magic red button, does it need to have a safety cover on it, for example? The, how many different protections can we put in place? And are there enough of them?
3: And, um, you know, I try to do that. I'm an engineering manager also, Evan, and, like, similarly mm-hmm. try to demonstrate vulnerability and publicly, like, share mistakes There are ways in which that impacts some people positively. There are ways in which that like me as a white person admitting mistake is a different deal. And me as a woman admitting a mistake is a different deal. And like, there's just so much in there about, I appreciated that you were going into the what happens after, because yeah, we can get people to say things, but then if the system does not actually hold what it is that people are saying. And if the system does not hold accountable to the people who are most marginalized in the system, like that's who gets to define whether or not accountability is real, whether or not what, like if there is psychological safety, et cetera, like it's not for the people with the most power to assess.
2: Yeah. This really resonates with me. I was, um, particularly because of a conversation I had with one of my uh, directs at work lately but uh, I found it really profound when this one direct of mine was very open about their experience as someone more diverse than me let's just say because you know I, I at least appear to be about as non-diverse as you get at least on the outside and um, they're concerned there are very real concerns because of the diversity and, and how that might Impact their career and how people perceive them, and how they're perceived impacts their career growth. And I was really grateful and humbled that they shared that with me. And so I, you know, took all that in and everything that they were telling me about their concerns. Thought about it some, and that that I, that I received that sharing has impacted my management on my team. That I don't talk to others on the team about um, this person's diversity, but. I am trying to get them to reflect further as a way of trying to check for bias with other people.
3: Yeah. That's been my main mission. (laughs) I feel like most of my life is like, can we just say and see when we are biased? Because we are of a culture that is incredibly biased and unjust. And like, there is no way to be separate from it. And One of my very favorite quotes from Diane De Prima, this beat poet, is, For every revolutionary must at last will his own destruction. Rooted as he is in the past, he sets out to destroy. (laughs) God, I feel that. As much as we can be change agents and, uh, you know, social justice advocates, ultimately, we are still of the thing. And yes. And I try to go on record all the time. I am definitely racist and sexist and homophobic and ableist yeah. and ageist. I am all of the things. I catch myself all of the time. And and then
2: there are the times you don't catch yourself too probably Fair. because yeah. un- yes. unconscious bias because that's that's why I try to make other people aware by approaching it indirectly is unconscious bias can creep in so in so many different ways. And okay, so all I can do is kind of explore this person's surface area and see, well, what is it you're really, what story are you telling yourself here? What data are you operating on? Is this congruent when you look at all of it together or do you see gaps for yourself? And if uh, I haven't had anyone's light bulb go off just yet, but I'm still working on some people and maybe it's, it's possible that there's, there were legitimate concerns, too, that can be accompanied by unconscious bias, and that can get really hard to deal with.
1: I read a paper recently about unconscious bias training being not effective at all, ever. And then I read another paper saying it's not effective when it's done very poorly, like in (laughs) PowerPoint. And it is effective when you have people talk about it with each other and actually apply it and think about it. It's not effective, and that's not so. No, no one was surprised. Put it on LinkedIn and Twitter, and everyone was like, "Duh!" But now we have science. when it's done poorly, it doesn't work.
2: Hello.
0: (laughs) But the but the addition to that is most of the time it's done poorly. That's true too. Yeah. And I'll give you my personal opinion. I didn't get. To, I didn't come up with this myself. If you're comfortable doing it, it's not being done well.
1: <laughs> That's yes. Well said. Yes. Yeah.
2: This is where I'll go back to meditation and mindfulness training. That with mindfulness, you become more aware. I've become more aware of the passing thoughts that I have. That are fairly. They're automatic thoughts. Uh, Buddhism has this idea of monkey mind that the mind is a machine that chatters like a monkey it's a machine for creating thought and we have metacognition if we're aware of our thoughts if we're paying attention to our thoughts I have noticed more of that chatter and oh whoa whoa I didn't I thought that what okay let's slow down here for a moment and explore that because that made me really uncomfortable that that went through my head in, in that moment about that person. You know, okay, whether it's racist, sexist, whatever, you know, I'm human, these thoughts come up and now I'm never getting a job again. Um, <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I went first, so.
2: I, I, I know you did. So you, you were vulnerable, thank you.
3: <laughs> Do you all know about Resma Menachem?
1: No. No?
2: Oh,
3: my gosh. Okay, so check it out. This guy says He wrote this book called My Grandmother's Hands, and he's saying that trauma is passed down physiologically. I've heard this. And part of the reason why we have not been able to deal with bias and all of this is because we are trying to do it through the mind, and that is not the place to go. It's actually physiological healing that we all are responsible to do. As part of contributing toward creating a different world is like it's within us. And so his premise is that the white on white trauma in like the Middle Ages got passed down. And that is part of how white people have, you know, been (laughs) passing along a lot more trauma. I'll (laughs) say that. Anyway, the book is fascinating. And the first time I've heard a like non brain thought focused Mm -hmm. way to approach social change.
0: I I feel this very, very strongly. Like there's such a folk and this is, this is why I bristled at, at our our neuroscience experts here (laughs) and and their lovely focus on, on, on neurology. Like there's so so much focus on neurons and, and the neurological system and the cognitive mind and the cognitive mind is such a tiny, tiny part of what we are. Yeah, true. Yes. We're we're a, we're a whole system. So no, I was going
2: to say something not double negative, not all that dissimilar. Uh, <laughs> he said closer to the mic to be ironic. That they're interconnected. Casey was talking to it too that thought creates physiological changes,
0: creates chromosomal changes, so genetic
3: changes and vice versa.
0: Yeah. And you can tell this, um, the the most obvious way to do this is next time you're angry, breathe slowly. It's literally impossible to be angry and breathing peacefully.
3: Mm, Oh my gosh. This is such a good challenge.
0: Yeah, I know this is what
3: Casey's going to quote at the end.
2: (laughs) I mean, (laughs) when you say breathe peacefully, let's be clear. You can slow your breathing down, but not be breathing peacefully when you're slowing your breathing down. But now it's how do we define peacefully? Sure. It could be really I'll nice and pedantic here. But it, as a meditator, yeah. Uh, may you meditate too, though, don't you? I thought. I'm a dabbler in you know, all,
3: all of the things.
2: So what, what is breathing peacefully? The deep breaths will, call, will tend to encourage the parasympathetic nervous system to kick in and over you know, that encouragement, the parasympathetic nervous system, the so-called rest and digest. So it's hard to sustain deep breathing for a long time and not calm down, but it's I'm sure it's possible. I I've, think I've had some experiences where I've been so emotionally activated. You could use the word "triggered." Uh, take your pick. Some people don't like it, but you know, at that point, it's if there's a trauma involvement, then it can be really hard to use the physiological to tamp down the emotional. Well,
0: what, what I will say is, is a bit is like just on a more fundamental level: your your thoughts, your emotions, they're physical and they're embodied; they're yeah, literally totally. in your body, and so they change your body, and your body changes them, and they 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 are not a separate thing.
2: So, you thought we were disagreeing. That's neuroscience, too. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you failed. <laughs> I have failed at disagreeing.
0: Ah!
1: <laughs>
2: I will never make it on cable television. I think this is what we call violent agreement.
1: Yes. <laughs> And yeah, for a lot of these things we're talking about, I quickly go to like, yes, there's even a science that supports it. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's true, even if we don't have the science to support it yet, because there's so much we don't know about everything.
2: I feel like we kind of got to meet the press table here because we've got the two on two of the people who want to say no, it's not science. And the people on the other side were saying Hey, this thing you're not saying is science. There's science for this.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, i, I was saying
2: don't
3: want to have to use science in order to be able to have faith. That's what I'm saying.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I would argue that even for those of us who don't really want to have faith, that there's always something we're taking on faith Totally, <laughs> because there's yeah. a lot of it. Because even those of us who, knows, who who think we know science so well, there are plenty of things we're ignorant of that we have that we operate with uh, us operate with very large assumptions on that we essentially take on faith because we don't understand them. The scientific method is taken on faith. Mm. Oh, oh God!
3: Yes.
2: <laughs> Someone get rid of Lesser Bach. I think we're hitting recursion.
3: <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh I'm God. having so much fun. <laughs>
1: Uh, another another book i've read some of <laughs> i always think about the audience we're talking to so i'm well equipped to talk to people who really want to hear some science because i can bring up some like well we don't know this part over here and i'm i'm very happy to be the person to talk to those people and i'm i am much less well equipped to talk to someone more spiritual who doesn't want to think about science things at all i'm not well equipped to oh, talk I've,
2: I've loved doing that But uh,
1: some people are fluent in both but uh, you know i, I specialize in this. Oh, I'm, I'm not fluent in it but i conversational l- perhaps
2: i like exploring <laughs> areas of disagreement and this really makes some people very uncomfortable in student government in college i prized the people who thought very differently from me because i often learned from them and had insights i wouldn't have otherwise i've um made my in-laws super uncomfortable because they're deeply religious. I am so not. And when I asked them challenging questions, I think they thought I was trying to start a fight. And instead, no, I was trying to start a a discussion to explore and learn, but they got upset.
4: (laughs) Yes. I have
3: this too, Evan.
0: A lot of people don't want to explore and learn because they're afraid of what they'll find. And I think, Um, I know that's true for me in certain areas.
2: I don't know that that's accurate, but I also don't think, I don't think it's, I'll be frank, I don't think it's all that generous either. No, uh, it's not generous, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, and I've been tested on this a lot because my wife is really quite religious and I'm not. So we're a really interesting pair that way. That I think it's instead that they're projecting negative intent on me because they're more accustomed to people. Challenging their belief from an aggressive and hostile place.
0: That's awesome. Where,
2: where frankly, I probably had some of that unintentionally, but my true intent was, and, and this goes back to something you were saying earlier, maybe that I wanted to say, and I forgot because ADHD probably that my vulnerability, my discussions with people, it's because I'm a little obsessed with truth and one doesn't find Truth through constant agreement one finds truth by taking your truth, comparing it to other people's truths that are different, and testing them and exploring. Which I think that's where we get and then combining them
3: enzymatically. Let's just use a science word to like prove this approach.
2: Yeah, you look for the yes ands, but then you also look for the oh, these these don't connect here and here, here, and here. And you know, the person of more faith might just say, "We well, have to just agree to disagree here. And I might go, well, and I might just have to, oh, okay, fine. I, you're saying you don't want to talk about that part is what I hear that. <laughs> One of my best friends, when I lived in the Eastern Shore of Maryland, devoutly religious, evangelical, and um, also into computers. And when we met, we would often go out to lunch and just have these really strong disagreements that I always found fascinating. And we would just talk and talk and talk. And inevitably, it would be a it would get into religion and God, and he would get down to because God has a plan for every one of us. And I'd say, yeah, I don't believe it.
0: <laughs> well, that's <laughs> unfalsifiable,
2: Right? So <laughs> we're, we're back to those. <laughs> I can't prove it's false things. I can't oh prove it's not Now we're just having
3: fun. And then, yeah, I can't
2: just... prove the non-existence of God. Enjoy. Boom, I'm done. <laughs> that's you know, like the Godwin's law of talking about religion. You got what's Godwin's law. Every conversation on the internet inevitably becomes about Hitler.
0: Boom. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> but, it, but it's an important point. Like when you, when you, um, you know, even as a, even as I a person who believes, him, sorry. <laughs> even with the person who is like taken on faith, this shared, objective, external reality exists. <laughs> and you know, I, there are still things that you know are unfalsifiable. Like, and so you have to. Well, what I like to do is, I get to choose. I get to choose what I believe. We all I do choose that. the beliefs that serve me the best. Or we all think we do. We might. I well, believe that do. too.
2: We, we, we might. <laughs> not have, we might have a free will, but you might believe we do, and I'm not so
0: sure. I suspect we don't. Well, that's also non falsifiable. <laughs> and so it's uh, another opportunity for me to choose a belief. Right, that currently,
2: uh, currently unfalsifiable. And as I said earlier, closing another loop. I'm not sure I want to live in the world where we can prove it because it'll get misused.
3: Mm, yeah. There's no deal there too. A loop piece too that I wanted to say is Evan on the thing about being interpreted as being like consternatious or or contentious, like trying to create conflict, like disagreement. To me, is not conflict. <laughs> Like you can disagree and not be in conflict, but I am from upstate New York and <laughs> the way no, upstate, that I talk upstate,
2: not Manhattan. So correct. Th- there's diff- <laughs>
3: uh, can sound like I am having a problem with someone because I'm challenging a thing they said. And th- and those are just very different to me, challenging a thing that someone said versus having a problem with a person and what they think. And my coined phrase I made up is conflict is care. So mm-hmm. like if there really is yeah. a conflict, it's because there's emotion involved. Somebody has to care for there to be actual conflict.
0: Otherwise you walk
2: away.
3: Yeah. It's like, yeah. well, whatever. That was weird.
2: So a uh, few things first conflict and disagreement to me, they can mean the same thing. Conflict doesn't have to imply uh, hostility or violence. Two different books come to mind based on what you on what you just said. One, uh, Radical Candor by Kim Scott. I love that book because one example, she, you know, it's a management book because it has a four quadrant diagram in it. And <laughs> May's laughing. That's not on the on the audio, but I, I love that book. And there's the um, top left quadrant. I can't remember what it's called. I always forget these. Which is the um you're just not contributing because you don't care enough. And so there's the, the whole right side of the diagram is you care enough to intervene. I think the bottom rate is, um, I can't forget, but basically you're saying the truth, but you're just being a jerk about it. It's Mm the, I'm sharing and I'm just being blunt and I'm not addressing your feelings on the matter at all. I'm just sharing, And the top right, the radical candor is I care and I'm sharing to try to help. So it speaks to compassion in the sense of I see a problem I'm offering because I care and I'm trying to and taking action because I have empathy. By the way, I'm almost literally borrowing bar- from the Search and Decide Yourself program when I say that and I describe compassion that way. The other book that came to mind, oh yeah, was um, Nonviolent Communication. I think that's Another that Daniel, book. Daniel Rosenberg. Yeah, that, that has been a hugely impactful book on me. Um, some people have a lot of difficulty with the notion that, that speech can be violent, but it comes down to... What does the word violence mean? Because if you think of violence in the form of violation, if you are saying things that are unwelcome to another person, that is a violation.
0: Well, also the, the author breaks that down and like clears that up in the very beginning. What, what they what they mean by violence is causes harm,
2: yeah. and then you know quantifying With, harm. Yeah, the, yeah, there's there's not just physical harm. Although, then we get into the neuroscience and physiological part. Emotional harm is physical harm. Because when we, these things we call feelings, I'm going to search inside yourself again here. These things we call feelings, they're felt sensations in the body that are manifestations of emotions that are in the brain.
0: I just, I just want to say that again. Feelings are felt sensations. (laughs) Bingo.
2: So when I feel bad, it's, I literally feel bad. I was telling my therapist yesterday when I was having a bad day, I said, I reached right for the pain relief that day. And he said, oh, yeah, I totally do that, too, because the felt sensations in the body are hurt. And, hey, guess what? Pain relief medication can treat the physical hurt. And if you treat the physical hurt, that can help with the emotional and mental hurt, too, a little. Because you don't have that exacerbating the emotional hurt.
1: You don't and have this your, is not just true. It's
2: studied. <laughs> Hey, Casey, blow people's minds and, and go link to the, the, the study in the show notes. Yeah. seriously, I, I bet you can find it. I just, I hope it's public. Yeah. This is something that drove me nuts in the Search Inside Yourself program that I'm that guy that when I'm looking at the neuroscience, it's okay. I see this study. I'm reading through the study. Cool. I want to know something about some of the other studies that are referred to in here because I have more questions. Wait, this shit's behind a paywall. Fuck this. Uh, yeah. There are so many studies behind the paywall, and unless you're associated with the university, you can't get them. Oh my
0: god, I hate. It. Pro tip: scientific authors love sharing their work, and they and they own the copyright to it. <laughs> Email them; they'll send it to you. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, you can't see my huge O face. <laughs> I am totally doing it.
3: But yeah. thank thank Mike, you. As someone who worked in higher ed for many years, that is consistently being defunded. Scientific inquiry happening in higher ed is like the places where the money goes and what research is allowed to happen is a pretty murky water. And so, you know, paying the distribution place to help there be some peer reviewed studies out there that are not only and solely funded by, you know, big industry uh, no names. That I'll give them my three bucks. You know.
2: Uh, I wish it was just three bucks, though. I, I'm, I'm yeah. I'm looking at wait. You want to purchase this journal so you can. Some of them you can rent. I think they said. But oh, cool. um, looking at these journals, it's like 250 bucks for oh, for a no. single journal.
0: And do the journals pay the do they pay the authors? Do they pay the peer reviewers?
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah, you get, uh, well, it depends uh, on the journal, on the, on the industry, but there is a whole extra thing about peer review being a part of kind of community service. It's like open source. So you have to have done it to be able to be let in the club and, and keep up your reps or whatever. So there's, there's definitely a lot of peer review stuff that happens. That's not as cool for especially earlier career researchers, but Yeah. There's definitely some funding that really goes back.
2: Well, yeah, I imagine you know, getting research funded in academia is always hard. So, sure. I mean, mm-hmm. if it's a few bucks here and there, it's one thing, but 250 bucks for a journal. That's so, That's Damien, uh, I'm going to try your idea.
1: <laughs> the <laughs> research I did was funded by the military because it was PTSD related. Oh, Even mm-hmm. though for my interests, it was like basic science how do epigenetics affect memory? But that is the application is PTSD. And the military has a big budget for that. Sounds like, you know, I they, was a little weird about it because that's, I don't know. I didn't want to get money from the military, but I did want to research was important.
3: A lot has always come from the military.
1: A lot has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey,
2: this internet we're talking on, <laughs> this internet thing that we're, we're using right now. Yeah. Yeah. That little thing came from this thing called uh, Defense mm-hmm. uh, Something Research Project Agency, I think DARPA. ARPANET originally, and yeah, that that, that was the internet way back when.
4: This episode is sponsored by Compiler, an original podcast from Red Hat discussing tech topics big, small, and strange. Compiler unravels industry topics, trends, and the things you've always wanted to know about tech through interviews with the people who know it best. On their show, you will hear a chorus of perspectives, from the diverse communities behind the code. Compiler brings together a curious team of Red Hatters to tackle big questions in tech, like what is technical debt? What are tech hiring managers actually looking for? And do you have to know how to code to get started in open source? I checked out the Should Managers Code episode of Compiler, and I thought it was interesting how the hosts spoke with Red Hatters who are vocal about what role, if any, that managers should have in code bases, and why they often fight to keep their hands on keys for as long as they can. Listen to Compiler on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to podcasts. We'll also include a link in the show notes. Our thanks to Compiler for their support.
1: We've been talking about knowledge and what is truth. And I want to bring up an idea that I'm surprised, surprised at so many people. I use these words completely differently. Believe, think, know, wonder, want, need. Every word like that is unique to me. So if I say, mm-hmm. I believe that's true, that doesn't mean I think it's true or I know it's true or I want it to be true. It means mm-hmm. I believe it's a belief I have based yep. on something. Do you want to know what the something is? I can tell you what that comes from. Or I know this is true. Yeah. I reserve that for like personal experience or there's a study yeah. in the study. I might not even use no for, because they can be contradicted as we're talking about all, the whole episode.
2: Can we survey listeners? Cause I'm actually curious how many people make this distinction. I do too. Uh, yeah. So I, I I'm actually curious now, is this normal or are you and I weird in similar ways that way? Because again, how did I end up finding out I have ADHD and why did it matter to me? It's
3: and we can make a deck out of it.
2: And and by the way, Uh, I I mentioned comorbidities of ADHD, ADHD and autism spectrum disorders. They tend to coexist. There are a lot of people who autism spectrum disorders have ADHD, also comorbid anxiety, depression, sometimes eating disorders, ding, 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 Um, and um, rejection sensitivity disorder. The list goes on and on and on. Yeah, yeah. So Some of these patterns, I've occasionally wondered. Hey, do I am I somewhere on the autism spectrum? I don't know, but I sometimes get into my classifications and get really pedantic about them.
1: I can be pedantic sometimes. I I I try to go light on it. Pedantic (laughs) too.
0: I
2: promise
1: but, um, you
0: normal people do not make distinctions between those words, but normal people are generally very sloppy with, with their
1: language. <laughs> yeah. We can't afford to for ever programming. It I, changes the way we think right? so, I would like
3: to normalize this word we're using right now, pretty liberally normal. Speaking of like being special uh-huh. about our uh-huh. words,
2: uh, neurotypical and and
1: neuroatypical you know, might might be a little bit common. Um, I like better most yeah. of the time. Uh, mm-hmm.
2: Normal Com- is the common is
0: idea that I should have used. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't like normal
2: so much. Common, yeah, okay. I, I tend to. I, there's a whole ADHD Twitter. You, know, you can, I could probably link to you. Listed. There's just the ADHD hashtag. I get thrown around a, lot, around a lot, and you see yeah. people talk about nt and you know, an awful lot there, neurotypicals
1: yeah that's more specific it is much more specific than normal what kind of normal yeah normal the word i want to drop but it still slips into my speech just like guys yeah same i haven't found a perfect replacement for how guys feels to use y'all and i wish i could I, I i y'all i love y'all sometimes y'all's good but if i walk into a room and say what are Okay, that's not a good example. How are you What, folks? what are you guys doing? What y'all is great there? I, 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 I use photos. where I use folks, guys
3: I use people, I use peeps, I use y'all, yes. I use all kinds of things.
1: Yep. Yeah, I use all these too. I might then have gotten one or two of those guys, for you.
3: As someone who has hung out in mostly places where it is all guys, I don't like it. <laughs> I just don't.
2: No. Uh
3: it doesn't make me feel good. How do you
2: really know self-identify as, as male? Right? I mean, seriously. So, but no, you know, I was going to say May, or I tried to say earlier, I, I might have, you know, the, the y'all peeps, in a, I don't know if I've used that occasionally. I'm pretty sure maybe at least one of these came from you, from you, from interacting with you at one point. Uh, just can't say which. Y'all, that was from a stint at Rackspace and going to Texas enough times, but I, I, I stuck with it. Yeah, y'all know. is and. great.
1: Y'all should be more formal, popular, mainstream, accepted English. It should, It should not be just slang casual. I use it in formal writing as much as I can get away with.
2: So happy in a work meeting yesterday to hear someone new to me use y'all in, in, in a work meeting setting. It, it tickled me.
1: <laughs> it's like in Spanish. Spain Spanish has vosotros. It's that's y'all. And that is more formal in Spanish.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, what, once we get y'all in English, um, we can we can extend it to the even more useful. Oh, boy. All y'all.
3: Yes. Oh, yeah. Now we're
0: talking. Oh, y'all.
2: It's it's you, y'all, all y'all. No, wait, there, there's some other ones I, I learned too. There's um, Yinz or
0: there, there's some other Philadelphia Yinz. That's a, yeah, that's oh, a so third it, person plural. It, it gets kind so of weird to me,
2: but every neologism starts weird before it gets normalized. I air quoted. <laughs> I remember the first time I heard Fleek and I just couldn't accept it.
3: <laughs> oh my gosh.
0: That's a tough one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I see, I I on on. Fleek. that's what it's used for mostly yeah. i think I, I think it's my gray hair showing fleek just yeah it, it, i still twitch
2: a little there i just lost a whole generation of people who might have been paying attention
3: <laughs> what by telling the truth and demonstrating vulnerability and saying things that
1: yes <laughs> so first let's do reflections on the episode and then we'll do the plugs who wants to go first
0: i can go first yeah. Um, cause my reflection is, is something I don't, I think one of the things we talked le- least about, but was demonstrated most the value of being vulnerable of just like revealing things. And, and I think that's like, I think because Evan, you're, you've been so vulnerable, you were so vulnerable opening up this conversation. Uh, it allowed us to have a really open and, and just really valuable conversation with that. So that's, that's an object lesson that I witnessed today and was a part of.
2: Thank you. And uh, May was saying it a lot earlier, and I really appreciate that you were vulnerable in sharing that that feedback as we went. By the way, that's also me sort of trying to imply to people who are listening, feedback doesn't have to be bad. Feedback can be can be encouraging, too. Evan's a doing his think, plug right now. Well, sort of. It, you know, when people hear the word feedback, they think it always has to be critical. Yeah. I, I winced. Uh, my reflection is just, I was tickled that we got to explore so many things. And while there was, or points of disagreement that the disagreement ultimately led to deeper discussion. I just had such a fun time with this. So very much echoing the sentiment May shared earlier in the conversation. My reflection is this was just fun kind of bouncing around all these different topics and exploring things, scientific, spiritual existential in all manner.
1: I'll go next. I like how many times Damien got the word unfalsifiable into this. <laughs>
0: and <gonna> non-falsifiable g- <laughs> a couple of times. One of yeah, those would yeah. be incorrect, right? <laughs> we used <laughs> not unfalsifiable the
1: first not time. Unfalsifiable. In yeah. <laughs> so I haven't oh. thought on it in a long time. I'm sure I have before, but we can't usually know what is truth. Truth is maybe unattainable in a lot of ways. But we can know when something's false. And there's something really satisfying about that. So I'm going to try to hold on to that thought and see how it feels.
3: I love that, Casey. I'm trying to remember the thing that Damien said that I thought was going to be the thing that you were going to say, Casey, because you're so good at always, like, getting in on the CTA options, but... CTA? Oh, thank you, Evan. I'm usually so good about acronyms and saying what they are. Call to action.
2: Oh, I see.
3: Well... I'm going to, my reflection is that I need to spend some time rethinking all of the stuff that we talked about, maybe even re-listening to be able to relay, I'm trying to come up with another word that starts with Ari, what my reflection is, but it's something Damien said, and it was really good, and I can't wait to rediscover it.
2: Was it about unconscious bias and that we need to be talking about our biases? Because if it's not uncomfortable,
3: then it's not productive. Yeah. That... Maybe it wasn't. I think it is. Right. I'll I think get back. Was, I'll
0: have to get back to
2: I it. Was, I think it was that it's not, an unco- it's not an effective conversation about bias if it's not uncomfortable. Mm, that's Everybody I,
0: I, uh, remembers it because it has a double negative in it.
2: That's possible. It, it <laughs> hurt. I got to admit, it did hurt saying it. That's the truth. I felt it. <laughs> but it's also true. I'm just. I admit, in my head, I am trying to knot the knots, <laughs> and it hurts.
0: Well, don't get tied in knots doing it, Evan.
2: <laughs> Bang bangs and Ruby hurt my brain, except they convert things to booleans. That's nice, mm. nice little trick in the Ruby language.
3: I have a plug and kind of call to plug. action. Plug plug. I really just like, please, everybody, think about all the ways in which you. Are biased and have healing to do, and in your body, brains well, they're complicated, and uh, maybe we'll have some more studies to tell us some more things about them. But our bodies, if you would consider bringing that also into your workplaces and your families and your communities about starting to truly talk about ways in which we are not awesome to each other, it will actually help us get more awesome
2: to each other. Amen. Yeah. We don't get better until we talk about where it hurts. So we face it. I think I, I plugged it a few times already, but I'll, I'll say it more explicitly. Uh, search inside yourself. I don't make money off of this. Uh, this is something where I took this class. I took it as a class in DC uh, about six years ago. I took it with Casey. In fact, we took it at the same yeah. time. And, um, yeah, it has been so impactful on my life in so many different ways that I literally took the time and effort to learn how to teach it. And this is something I've been primarily doing in my spare time. It's taken a little bit of time away from work for the actual sit down with other people in trainings with the super experienced trainers. But most of that time has been evenings and weekends pouring over material and cramming all these things into my brain and trying to not only learn it all, but then learn the mental model of it all to be able to share it with other people and search inside yourself is a way to build the muscles to do exactly what may is urging you to do that. Empathy is a skill. You can learn it that you might not have learned it early that enough that uh, we I, I, right, I'm extending that plug to the ADHD again, uh, but uh, I'll, I'll finish. That most of us didn't grow up on a, with the minimum recommended dose of Mr. Rogers in our life. I say that as someone who didn't. I know someone, Casey and I have a good friend who, uh, who did, and I'm really grateful. I guess I'll mention that friend, Andrew Duncan, that uh, he grew up with a lot of Mr. Rogers and, and got me thinking and reflecting a lot more on the man. And the more I learned, the more I wish I had paid attention when I was little. Because yeah. uh, a lot of those lessons um, are really important in the modern world where we need to work with other people and live better with other people. And the consequence of not doing that is a world with a lot of hostility and divisiveness that, oh, by the way, we live in right now. So um, if we all cultivated some more empathy, I think we would all be a lot better off. I, I think. Sorry, no, I don't think. I believe, but I also have data to support it. Interesting. See, I, I didn't. I, I did not use "I think" colloquially there.
1: Nuance. Yeah, Andrew has been on the show before. If you missed the episode with Andrew Dunkman, you might want to go check it out. It's pretty good. All right. I want to share my plug. I'm so shy about sharing. Um, I have my own business, Happy and Effective, and it is so related to every episode, honestly. And uh, finally, enough people have encouraged me to talk about it on the show. And now's a great moment. Just like Evan is uh, studying to teach Search Inside Yourself, I do workshops kind of like that through my company on emotional intelligence and well-being, things like debugging your brain. I do a lot of DEI training, diversity, equity, and inclusion, strategic thinking, leadership skills. And my approach is so hands-on. It's all breakout rooms and talking to each other and applying it. And I give homework. I give reading assignments. Anyway, if you want to bring that to your company, uh, reach out to me. I'd love to chat with you. We can help get it, make it happen the website for that is happy and effective. Do you make people uncomfortable in that That's process,
0: me. Casey? <laughs> Excellent.
1: <laughs> yeah, but they love it because they're in a supportive environment. That might be my superpower, making Excellent. people comfortable. We trying do things. things. <laughs> it's true in the dance classes I teach too. I get people who hate dancing, think they hate dancing to become comfortable with it. Happy with it.
2: We make people uncomfortable and search inside yourself too. <laughs> yep. And true the whole point. You got to stretch yourself. Damien, you haven't gone.
0: <laughs> I wish I had something to plug. I'll, I'll, I'll plug some of the books we mentioned. Uh, Siddhartha, absolutely amazing. Yes. Um,
2: yes.
1: Short, short narrative. Short read. Fun fun read. Uh, there's a free oh, yeah. version of this on Gutenberg. I put a link in the show notes. It's yeah. free. Non-violent you can just get it on your phone. Do another it. amazing
0: book. That's Not as much fun to read, but impi- incredibly impactful. And well, there, then, are more,
2: there are also courses on nonviolent yeah. communication that you can take offered around the world, really fairly cheaply. They're, they tend, Some of them tend to be uh, community given. My wife and I went to one some time ago.
0: So Yeah, I've, I've heard good things about those. Yeah. And then, then finally, um, the last one. Conversations for Action. Ooh, I hope I got that right. Uh, Fernando Flores. We didn't talk about Ooh. this, but um, but it talks very much about speech being an act. You're not you're not just talking. You're right. doing something when you talk. Right. So amazing book.
2: Yeah, there are a lot of books in this list. That makes me happy. I have more things to read now. though. damn it! Mm-hmm. <laughs> Longer reading list.
0: Well Evan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I was yeah, really glad to believe this was A lot of
2: fun.